1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
1: I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins.info. looking for a podcast that's more challenging more stimulating intellectually well here's the place sit back relax and enjoy Welcome everyone, this is episode 100 of Origins, I'm your host Paul, this is the old and the new, part 2. As you can tell, this comes very close on the heels to episode 34 of Mysteries Abound. Well, it's a bit of a quiet week at work, it might be going to rain, which means I won't get any work later in the week either, so it's time to sit down and podcast like crazy. And as you can tell by the beginning of this podcast, which was the introduction from episode 23, I'm still using the old Logitech headset at this stage. The quality is improving. I'm a little bit more considerate of noises in the background and little errors and clicks in the microphone. Not as fussy as I am now. You might notice you don't get much of that anymore. A lot of retaking and re recording goes into the later episodes. Anyway, it's time to start doing some stories. So, from episode 23, an article by James Owen Snakeless in Ireland Blame the Ice Age, not St. Patrick. And our feature story for today comes from the news.nationalgeographic.com website and it's written by James Owen from London. Snakeless in Ireland? Blame the Ice Age, not St Patrick. During St. Patrick's Day, most revellers won't remember the patron saint of Ireland for his role as a snake killer. But legend holds that the Christian missionary rid the slithering reptiles from Ireland's shores as he converted its peoples from paganism during the 5th century AD. St. Patrick supposedly chased the snakes into the sea after they began attacking him during a 40-day fast he undertook on top of a hill. An unlikely tale, perhaps, yet Ireland is unusual for its absence of native snakes. It's one of only a handful of places worldwide, including New Zealand, Iceland, Greenland and Antarctica, where Indiana Jones and other snake-averse humans can visit without fear. But St Patrick had nothing to do with Ireland's snake-free status, scientists say. As Keeper of Natural History at the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin, Nigel Monaghan has trawled through vast collections of fossil and other records of Irish animals. At no time has there ever been any suggestion of snakes in Ireland. So there was nothing for St Patrick to banish, Monaghan says. So what did happen? Most scientists point to the most recent ice age, which kept the island too cool for reptiles until it ended 10,000 years ago. After the Ice Age, surrounding seas may have kept snakes from colonising the Emerald Isle. Once the ice caps and woolly mammoths retreated back northward, snakes returned to the northern and western Europe, spreading as far as the Arctic Circle. Britain, which had a land bridge to mainland Europe until about six and a half thousand years ago, was colonised by three snake species, the venomous adder, the grass snake and the smooth stake. But Ireland's land link to Britain was cut some two thousand years earlier by seas swollen by the melting glaciers, Monaghan noted. Animals that reached Ireland before the sea became an impassable barrier included brown bears, wild boars and lynxes. But snakes never made it, he said. Snake populations are slow to colonize new areas, Monaghan added. Mark Ryan, director of the Louisiana Poison Center at the Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in Shreveport, agreed that the timing wasn't right for the sensitive, cold-blooded reptiles to expand their range. There are no snakes in Ireland for the simple reason they couldn't get there, because the climate wasn't favourable for them to be there, he said. Other reptiles didn't make it either, except for one, the common or viviparous lizard. Ireland's only native reptile, the species must have arrived within the last 10,000 years, according to Monaghan. So unless St. Patrick couldn't tell a snake from a lizard, where does the legend come from? Scholars suggest that the tale is allegorical. Serpents are symbols of evil in Judeo-Christian beliefs. The Bible, for example, portrays a snake as the hissing agent of Adam and Eve's fall from grace. The animals were also linked to heathen practices, so St. Patrick's dramatic act of snake eradication can be seen as a metaphor for his Christianizing influence. Anyone in Ireland looking for serpents to exile would probably have to settle for the slow worm, a non-native species of legless lizard that is often mistaken for a small snake. First recorded in the early 1970s, the species is thought to have been deliberately introduced in Western Ireland in the 1960s, according to Ireland's National Parks and Wildlife Service. However, the reptile doesn't appear to have spread beyond a wildlife-rich limestone region in County Clare, known as the Burren. In the future, genuine Irish snakes are a possibility, Monaghan said. Pet snakes deliberately released by their owners would be the most likely source, though they wouldn't be welcome. No alien species is without risk to well-established fauna, Monaghan explained. The isolated nature of an island population makes Ireland highly vulnerable to any introduction, no matter how well-meaning or misguided. Henry Capsprick, curator of reptiles at the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPQ Aquarium, said that Ireland's indigenous wildlife would not be prepared for snake introductions. Invasive snakes such as the brown tree snake have already wreaked havoc in Guam and other island ecosystems, he added. Nor would getting rid of any such unwanted creatures be as easy as St. Patrick made it look. I don't want to completely burst the celebrity myth of St. Patrick, he said. I want to keep some of it alive. From the www.news.com.au website, the last few early humans survived in Eden, scientists say. A strip of land on Africa's southern coast became a last refuge for the band of early humans who survived an ice age that wiped out the species elsewhere, scientists maintain. The land, referred to by researchers as the Garden of Eden, may have been the only part of Africa to remain continuously habitable during the Ice Age that began about 195,000 years ago. Scientists' excavations showed how a combination of rich vegetation on land and nutrient-laden currents in the sea created a source of food that could sustain early humans through devastating climate changes. Shortly after Homo sapiens first evolved, the harsh climate conditions nearly extinguished our species," said Professor Curtis Marin of the Institute of Human Origins at Arizona State University. Recent finds suggest the small population that gave rise to all humans alive today survived by exploiting a unique combination of resources along the southern African coast. The idea that early humans were once reduced to a tiny remnant population arose from research showing that modern humans have far less genetic diversity than most other species. Some scientists suggested the human population could have fallen to as low as a few hundred individuals during this period, while others insisted the evidence to support this theory remains weak. During his study, Professor Marion discovered that the isolated caves around an area known as Pinnacle Point, South Africa, 386 kilometres east of Cape Town, were rich in ancient human artefacts. In a soon-to-be-published paper, Professor Marian and his colleagues argued the caves contain archaeological remains going back at least 164,000 years, and possibly even further back. The remains also showed that, despite the hardships suffered by early humans in other places, the inhabitants of Pinnacle Point were living in a land of plenty. And whilst we're talking about early man and the early history of man, an article from the www.discoveryon.info website. Neanderthal man had giant arms and a body brimming with steroids. Neanderthal guys were no girly men. Prehistoric man apparently boasted a rock-hard body, including an overdeveloped right arm that would make Popeye jealous, according to a new scientific report. The Neanderthals hunted in the extreme, Russian professor Maria Mednikova told Discovery News. She said instead of shooting prey with a bow and arrow the Neanderthal man used direct contact with his victim, stabbing animals with a spear and giving his dominant arm, usually the right one, an intense workout. The professor said female Neanderthals were strong but more evenly muscular in both arms. Either way, Neanderthals make modern-day humans look wimpy. Of course, they had some chemical help, it seems. Mednikova says their strong, thick-boned structure was aided by a markedly androgenic constitution. Simply put, the Neanderthal body was brimming with natural steroids. Genes, a cold climate, and an all-meat diet helped contribute to the Neanderthal's buff body, the scientists believe. Neanderthals dined on mammoths and deer, among other plant-eating animals. The scientists based their research on an analysis of Neanderthal arm bone, dating roughly from 100,000 years ago and found in what is now Russia. Their findings were published in the journal Archaeology, Ethnology and Anthropology of Eurasia. was doing my postgraduate degree in children's literature, I of course came across the story of Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe was written in 1719 by Daniel Defoe and the success of this novel spawned enough imitations that its name was used to define a genre which is sometimes described as a desert island story or more commonly known as a Robinsonade. The story was based on a man called Alexander Selkirk, and when Daniel Defoe heard of his story about being shipwrecked on an island, it inspired the story. So from episode 24, a damn interesting dot com story, The Solitude of Alexander Selkirk. And now from the damninteresting.com website. The Solitude of Alexander Selkirk, and it's written by Ben Taylor. It's a small spot on the map. Below the 34th degree south latitude, the island of Juan Fernandez casts a modest shadow in the vast eastern Pacific Ocean. In 1704, Alexander Selkirk, shouting from the beach of this forgotten island, saw a western breeze carry his ship and crewmates into the October horizon. His next four years would be in solitude as he struggled for survival and, in time, inspired Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Selkirk first went to sea at 15 to escape a formal charge of undecent behaviour. Later, as a grown man, he joined the crew of the Sink Ports 130 tonne vessel of billowing sails and swelling planks. Selkirk was a master navigator as they traveled south along the coast of Brazil. After reaching the southern tip of Argentina, they turned north following the coast of Chile. However, diminishing rations and disease saw their original crew of 90 wither to 42. The ship was strained against a relentless ocean. The situation worsened when an infestation of worms reduced portions of the hull to near pulp, yet relief lay ahead. In September 1704, the tiny island of Juan Fernandez appeared on the horizon. Captain Stradling ordered the crew to anchor in the island's bay, providing the men with a needed respite from their frustration and suffering. The sojourn on the island was brief the captain was anxious to return to his ship and voyage. Selkirk insisted, however, that the ship was no longer seaworthy and that the leaking hull would succumb to the temperament of the ocean or enemies. He urged captain and crew to remain on the island and wait for help, but they ignored him. Selkirk's defiance grew until finally Stradling ordered that Selkirk be left on the island with only his sea chest, bedding and clothing. Moments later the ship and the crew set sail while Selkirk watched in anguish from the lonely shore of the island. He shouted for them to return, begging for forgiveness, but the ship continued. Among his possessions was a pistol, gunpowder, bullets, a knife, a hatchet, navigation instruments, a bible, a flask of rum and enough food for just a few days. He watched the horizon awaiting salvation. Escape on a makeshift raft was impossible. The closest inhabited land was Valparaiso, a journey of 600 miles north. His pistol provided reassurance that his final hours could be of his choosing. Upon his exploration of the island's sharp lava rocks and lush vegetation, he found fresh water to drink, seals to provide meat, and indigenous plums to protect against scurvy. Selkirk had heard stories of other men who survived years of seclusion before eventually being rescued. He knew of men like Pedro de Serrano, a man who spent seven years isolated on an island in the Pacific without fresh water. Serrano survived by drinking the blood of turtles but eventually became insane. Other men had survived for years with fewer resources than those offered by the island of Juan Fernandez. Selkirk knew what one man could do, so could another. Selkirk's warnings of an unsafe ship proved accurate. Within a month of his exile, the sank ports gave in to its fate and sank off the coast of Peru. Many of the men drowned and those remaining, including the captain, made it to the shore of an island where fourteen more died. In time they surrendered to the Spanish Garda Costa and were imprisoned in Lima, where the Spaniards put them in a close dungeon and used them very barbarously. The captain escaped and in time returned to Britain, poor and in diminished health. Despite living alone on the island, Selkirk was not without the threat of man. One day he spotted a ship anchored in the bay. High above was the Spanish flag. Selkirk ran for cover. Being Scottish, he knew that his capture would lead to enslavement or death. They chased him, The echo of their gunshots rang out across the island. He was outnumbered and unequipped in the pursuit. His knowledge of the island was his only advantage. He climbed into the thick brush of a tree and remained silent. Two days passed before the Spaniards left. The tide shifted, the shadows stretched and Selkirk remained. He persevered by keeping his mind on the future. He maimed wild goats when they were young, to ensure they would never be able to outrun him. If his health ever withered, he could then rely on these easy pursuits. One day the hunt for a goat nearly ended his life when he fell from a cliff, leaving him senseless for the space of three days, the length of which time he measured by the moon's growth since his last observation. The fall would have meant certain death had he not landed on the goat he was pursuing. Over four years Selkirk kept count of the 500 goats he slaughtered. Others were captured only for sport and released after he carved a notch in their ear. This was his method of indicating the speed and physical aspects of the goat. The necessities of basic survival dictated the routine of his day. Often he stood atop the island, peering out into the vast ocean, searching for the glimmer of a ship. Or some reminder of the world he once knew. In these silent times he was subjected to revolutions in his own mind, hoping one day he would return home. It was a late afternoon in 1709 when a ship approached the island. Though he could not determine the nationality of these men, he was desperate and ran to the shore. Quickly he ran across the beach signalling them with a burning branch. The men disembarked onto the island, guns drawn and aimed at the weathered face of Selkirk. With his hands above his head he told them he was marooned. The crew offered him room aboard the ship. Selkirk would only join if he was assured straddling his former captain was not president. The name was of no meaning to these men, searching only for food and fresh water. Captain Woods Rogers later wrote of Selkirk's marooned existence in his book, A Cruising Voyage Around the World. And this is a quote from the book. Selkirk was at first much pestered with cats and rats that bred in great numbers from some of each species, which had got ashore from ships that put in there for food and water. The rats gnawed his feet and clothes while he slept, which obliged him to cherish the cats with his goat's flesh by which so many of them became so tame, that they would lie about in hundreds, and soon delivered him from the rats. He likewise tamed some kids, to divert himself, would now and then sing and dance with them and his cats, so that by the favour of providence and the vigour of his youth, but now but being thirty years old, he came at last to conquer all the inconveniences of his solitude, and to be very easy. When his clothes were worn out, he made himself a coat and cap of goatskins, which he stitched together with little thongs of the same that he had cut with his knife. He had no other needle but a nail, and when his knife was worn to the back he made others, as well as he could, of some iron hoops that were left ashore, which he beat thin and ground upon stones. Having some linen cloth by him, He sewed him some shirts with a nail and stitched them with the worsted of his old stockings, which he pulled out on purpose. He had his last shirt on when we found him on the island. Selkirk had seen himself through more than fifteen hundred nights alone. After four years and four months he was returning home. The ship's officer set a course to travel north along the coast of Peru. Selkirk saw his island pass into the distance as the faint glow of the embers from his signal fire faded on the beach. After his rescue, a different isolation set in. Selkirk returned to his hometown of Largo, where he was unable to acclimate to the regimen of daily life. In his most desperate hours, he sought out the seclusion of a small cave on a high spot of land. He married in 1717, but soon returned to sea. Authors interested mostly in money occasionally penned his story in short form. Writer Daniel Defoe, approaching 60 and burdened by the cost of his daughter's wedding, published a fictionalised account of Selkirk's ordeal as Robinson Crusoe in 1719, his 412th publication. Its popularity mandated two sequels. In 1720, after a brief time in port. Selkirk married another woman without regard to his first wife. Again their time together was short as he joined the HMS Weymouth as first mate. He would see this journey end in the grip of a virus which claimed his life in 1721. That night the first lieutenant recorded Selkirk's death in his log and noted a small breeze. The same drifting wind that saw the sink ports disappear into the horizon would return to see Selkirk's life fade before he was relinquished to the ocean. The world became fascinated with the tale of Crusoe, yet few readers knew of the complicated man who inspired the timeless novel. In 1966, the Chilean government changed the name of Alexander Selkirk's Scrap of Earth to Robinson Crusoe Island, a bittersweet monument to his fictionalised counterpart. Selkirk never found his place in society, but came to inhabit his permanent existence behind the words of Defoe's book. Only when forced into seclusion was there enough stillness and silence for Selkirk to hear the echoing of his soul that, like so many others, wanted only to find itself. Long-time listeners to the podcast will know that one of my favourite websites is the www.livescience.com. It has lots of quirky, strange and interesting stories to do with science. And this one came from episode 33. And it's called The Parachuting Dog, which helped to win World War II. And it's by Heather Whipps. And this article is notable for the fact that after about episode 30, I bought a new microphone. I finally traded in the Logitech headset, sold my iPod, which wasn't very old, but I didn't use it a lot, so I got a few hundred dollars for it got some money for my birthday and put together my current microphone, my Rode Podcaster with the shock mount and the arm and things became a lot better. The quality of the sound of the podcast improved. I still needed to tweak the settings on my software and things like that to get the sound that I get today but the sound quality was better. I was much happier with what I got and because the podcast microphone is in a shock mount and on an arm there was less bumping and clicking. That was driving me insane with the headset. So from episode 33, the parachuting dog that helped to win World War II. Heather Whips, writing for the LiveScience.com website, has the story entitled, Parachuting Dog Helped to Win World War II. The Allied airmen and women of World War II were certainly brave and skilled in battle, but even they couldn't win the war on their own. Plagued in the early low-tech years of the war by dangerous afflictions such as altitude and decompression sickness, Pilots got some help behind the front lines from a team of American physiologists who studied the effects on the body of flying. Their research, which involved at least one parachuting dog, and the technology it initiated was a key to the Allied victory in the air, says J.B. Dean of the University of South Florida College of Medicine. Pilots had two enemies. They had the enemy they were shooting at, and they had the unseen enemy, which was the environment, he said. The physiologists knew that they had to do something to learn to protect the health of their warfighter. Dean presented his research at a recent experimental biology conference in San Diego, and is working on a book about Allied advances in aviation physiology. Aviation in the late 1930s and early 1940s, just under 40 years removed from the Wright brothers' feet at Kitty Hawk, was nothing like the high tech industry it is today. When World War two began, planes weren't even heated or even pressurized, even though pilots were forced to climb to very high altitudes to avoid the enemy. They were supposed to fly at about twenty five thousand feet. Well, they were pushing them up to thirty thousand and thirty five thousand feet to try and get above the enemy flak from the ground, Dean said. At that height, the airmen were exposed to temperatures of 40 below to 70 below zero Fahrenheit, as well as very low air pressure. If there's less pressure, there's less oxygen, Dean said, and you begin to lose your ability to think clearly. You can imagine trying to wage warfare and have a sharp mind if you're slowly becoming hypoxic or losing oxygen content in the blood, he said. Though the Allies had kept up with the Axis powers in aircraft technology, their knowledge about how the body reacted to high altitudes lagged well behind, according to historical accounts. The tests that began a few years after the war began became crucial to the military effort, Dean said. The air war had become a psychological war, Dean said in a recent interview, noting that the common perception was that the first power to fly, routinely at 40,000 feet, would win. Starting out with just one hyperbaric chamber, which mimics the conditions of a high-altitude environment, Ohio Laboratory, set up by World War II physiologists, quickly focused on finding solution to the worst problems the pilots faced. Dean said, "About one quarter of the men on bombing missions, which could last up to ten hours, complained of decompression sickness, the painful blood affliction scuba divers commonly call the bends." The physiologists discovered that the effects of the bends could be minimized by breathing pure oxygen before takeoff. Blood tests and lung capacity tests were also conducted to figure out the limits of the human lung. When the simulations weren't sufficient, the physiologists put their bodies on the line, Dean said. One doctor made a high-altitude jump himself to experience the strain on the body, nearly killing himself, and was able to calculate exactly when an airman's parachute should be opened to limit the impact of the G-forces, said Dean. And Major, a 145-pound St. Bernard dog, was also tossed from a plane at 26,000 feet to test parachute straps at a high altitude. Sporting his own custom oxygen tank, Major dog paddled all the way down and landed safely, witnesses said. The research conducted during the war was relevant long after 1945, Dean said. A lot of what we learned about pulmonary mechanics came from the war effort when they were developing the oxygen-breathing equipment, he said. And just like their World War II predecessors, astronauts performing spacewalks outside the pressurized safety of their shuttle today still breathe pure oxygen for 12 hours to reduce the risk of decompression sickness. Secrets of the First Moon Landing and this comes from the www.motherboard.tv website. No, it wasn't a hoax, but some of the details of Apollo 11's remarkable journey to the moon are stranger than fiction. I mean, it was the first time humans set foot on another celestial body. And following are the points. They pulled an all-nighter. While the schedule for the mission called for the astronauts to follow the landing with a five-hour nap, they had been awake since early morning, they chose to forego the sleep period and begin the preparations for their lunar excursion early, thinking that they would be unable to sleep. Point number two. TV coverage of the landing was recorded from another TV. The first landing used slow-scan television incompatible with commercial TV, so it was displayed on a special monitor at NASA and a conventional TV camera viewed this monitor significantly reducing the quality of the picture. This has helped fuel the notion that the moon landing was a hoax. Despite technical and weather difficulties, ghostly black-and-white images of the first moonwalk were broadcast to at least 600 million people on Earth. Point number three. The tapes of the moon landing were lost. Although copies of the video in broadcast format are widely available, recordings of the original slow-scan source transmission from the moon were accidentally destroyed during routine magnetic tape reuse at NASA as was a backup that existed at Honeysuckle Creek Tracking Station in Australia. The erasure has provided yet more fodder for the mythmakers. Last year, NASA issued its final report on the tapes. Point number four. They had to squeeze through the hatch. Armstrong's portable life support system made it hard for him to exit the lander, which included a smaller hatch, and the astronauts had practice with. The backpack was later redesigned. Some of the highest heart rates recorded from Apollo astronauts occurred when they were getting in and out of the lander. Point five. The Soviets landed there a few days before. The unmanned Luna 15 Soviet spacecraft began its own descent to the lunar surface just a few hours before the Apollo 11 liftoff and crashed. This was widely seen as the climax of the space race, but also a moment of unusual cooperation. The USSR released Luna 15's flight plan to ensure it would not collide with Apollo 11, though its exact mission was unknown. Point number six. Armstrong was moving fast. As time was running out, Mission Control used a coded phrase to warn the mission commander that his metabolic rates were high and that he should slow down. But as metabolic rates remained generally lower than expected for both astronauts, Mission Control granted the astronauts a 15-minute extension. Point seven. Buzz broke the engine circuit breaker. While moving within the cabin of the lunar module, Aldrin accidentally broke the circuit breaker that would arm the main engine for liftoff from the moon, potentially leaving them stranded there. Fortunately, a felt-tip pen was enough to activate the switch. If this hadn't worked, the lunar module circuitry could have been reconfigured to allow firing the ascent engine. Point eight they left behind a list of congressmen. Along with a plaque and a memorial bag containing a gold replica of an olive branch, the astronauts left behind a silicon message disk. It carried the goodwill statements by Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon, and messages from leaders of 73 countries around the world, as well as a listing of the leadership of the US Congress a listing of members of the four committees of the House and Senate responsible for the NASA legislation, and the names of NASA's past and present top management. They also left behind Soviet medals commemorating cosmonauts Vladimir Komarov and Yuri Gagarin. Just before climbing back into the lunar module, Armstrong reminded Aldrin of a bag of memorial items in his suit pocket sleeve and Aldrin tossed the bag down. Number 8. The flag fell over. As the astronauts lifted off the lunar surface, film shows the flag whipping violently in the exhaust of the ascent stage engine. Buzz Aldrin saw it topple. Subsequent Apollo missions usually planted the American flags at least 100 feet from the lunar module to prevent it being blown over by the exhaust from the ascent engine. Point 9. Nixon was prepared to bury them on the moon. In the event of a catastrophic failure that would leave Aldrin and Armstrong on the moon, William Sapphire, President Nixon's speechwriter, drafted a plan to be followed. Mission control was to close down communications with the lunar module. In a public ritual likened to burial at sea, clergymen would then have commended their souls to the deepest of the deep. Presidential telephone calls to the astronauts' wives were also planned. The speech began, Fate? has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. And finally, number 10. A ten-year-old kept Apollo in touch. After a fairly smooth docking procedure, the three astronauts began their return to Earth. But along the way, the Guam tracking station failed which would have made communication on the last segment of the Earth Return difficult. A staff member had his ten-year-old son, Greg Force, do repairs that were made possible by his small hands. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. By the time episode 41 came about, I'd really settled into doing the podcast. The quote from The Matrix had become the familiar opening, and I had started to play around with different music for the introduction of Origins. That's probably my favourite, and it's called Dance of the Clouds, and it's by a group called Origin, which is spelled O-R-I-G-E-N. Of course, in the Origins podcast, everything wasn't too serious. I did find stories that were humorous. I did include little humorous anecdotes from websites that I found. And of course, the telegraph.co.uk website was one of my favourite sources, having many, many great articles. So sort of combining the humorous with one of my favourite websites, I did stories like these. Cow farts collected in plastic tank for Global Warming Study. a bid to understand the impact of the wind produced by cows on global warming, scientists collected gas from their stomachs in plastic tanks attached to their backs. The Argentine researchers discovered methane from cows accounts for more than 30% of the country's total greenhouse emissions. As one of the world's biggest beef producers, Argentina has more than 55 million cows grazing in its famed pampas grasslands. Guillermo Berra, a researcher at the National Institute of Agricultural Technology, said every cow produces between 8,000 to 1,000 litres of emissions every day. Methane, which is also released from landfills, coal mines and leaking gas pipes, is 23 times more effective at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. Scientists are now carrying out trials of new diets designed to improve cow's digestion and hopefully reduce global warming. Sylvia Valtorta, of the National Council of Scientific and Technical Investigations said that by feeding cows clover and alfalfa instead of grain you can reduce methane emissions by 25%. about episode 50 of Origins, I started to introduce content from my other podcasts into the Origins podcast. I decided I would try to finish Origins on a light note each week, so I used some of the website links and stories and things that I might have used in Bizarre Bizarre in the Origins podcast. I even used the theme from Bizarre Bizarre, as can be heard here from episode 50. on broadcasting. And as per usual, something to finish off on a light-hearted note. The World Wide Weird. Story 1. A 15-year-old girl has been forced to move schools after reportedly giving hash cookies to teaching assistants. Two assistants at a Leeds school suffered from dizziness and headaches after eating the cakes. They were taken to hospital where doctors diagnosed cannabis ingestion a Church of England priest has been ordered to remove comments from his blog calling for gay men to have their backsides tattooed with a warning about sodomy. Rev Peter Mullen 66 insisted his remarks were light-hearted jokes and satirical. Relatives beat a Malaysian couple to death in a ritual apparently meant to help the man to stop smoking, police said. The couple died of head injuries after being beaten with broomsticks and motorbike helmets during a family gathering at a Kuala Lumpur home. A Californian inventor has been granted U.S. patent number 7,428,788 for a coin-operated bidet designed to be used in public restrooms. Ayo Park said his design also includes a warm air blower. Times have been tough for banks everywhere, but a San Diego-area Wells Fargo branch in California had an especially difficult day this week. The branch at La Misa was robbed twice in one day by two different bandits, three hours apart. A U.S. man admitted to hospital with abdominal pains was told by doctors he was pregnant. John Pippin received the news as he was sent home with painkillers. Staff gave him a note saying, Based on your visit, we know you are pregnant. Computer error was blamed. A one-legged man needing a $90,000 bionic limb to walk again got one free after popping into a pub. David Huckvale was sipping a beer when he was tapped on the shoulder by a US surgeon who said he had a spare leg in his office and he could have it for nothing. And finally... Two fast food addicts in Norwich, East England, celebrated their marriage with their dream wedding cake, a 20 kilogram cheeseburger. Tom and Kerry Watts' Mammoth Burger was nearly half a metre wide and weighed the equivalent of about 100 quarter pounders. Well that concludes episode 50 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and didn't mind waiting a couple of weeks longer than normal to get it. My family and I did enjoy a little holiday away even though most of the time I was just sitting under a tree enjoying the relaxation and doing nothing. Bit too cool to go swimming for me but the children didn't mind they were off in the water most days. Anyway I hope to see you all again in episode 51 of Origins. Bye for now. That brought back a nice memory back to October 2008 when the teenagers were happy to go on holidays with us. Not so anymore. Those September-October holidays are gone for the time being. By the look of it. Anyway, not to lament, let's move on. Five ancient Egyptian inventions we still use today from the www.environmentalgraffiti.com website. A country that is rich in history, a land that has known great prosperity and despair, a world that is beautiful and full of life, yet can be just as raw and difficult to survive in. Egypt is a place that holds the roots of humankind and secrets still undiscovered. Many of the objects we use every day and the use of certain everyday objects originated in Egypt. Objects such as the toothbrush, Toothpaste, locks and keys, makeup, combs, wigs, deodorant, and scissors. Makeup was not used for beauty, but for skin care. It was mainly used to protect people's skin from the sun's harmful rays. Let's take a look at just five of those objects. Number one, the condom. Did you know that even the idea of the condom originated in Egypt? It is said that as far back as 1000 BC, Egyptians used a linen sheath during intercourse for protection against diseases, among other things. Amazing, you say? Indeed. Well, just as I read that, a little story came to my mind, a little anecdote from something that I do in the botanical gardens. I know it's sort of spoiling the flow of the story a little, but I just thought I'd throw it in here as a little bit of amusement. In the botanical gardens, we quite often get students from overseas, from South America, China, Japan, Korea, places like that. And we do a lesson on Aboriginal plant use, or how the Aborigines of Australia used to use the rainforest plants. Anyway, one of the trees that I showed the students is the blue Kwondong tree. It's a very tall, fast-growing rainforest plant. It has beautiful blue fruit which can be eaten, or we can make it into a jam these days, and the seeds of this plant are very attractive. But because the students coming from overseas quite often have English as their second language, I get some sly grins and funny comments when I point out the blue Kwondong tree, Q-U-O-N, D-O-N-G So we get things like condom, condom tree, we didn't know condoms grew on a tree, so then I have to articulate extremely carefully, Quan dong tree. Anyway, so much for my little story on the side, I hope you found it mildly amusing. Number 2. High Heel Shoes Ah yes, high-heel shoes. They say diamonds are a girl's best friend, but in reality most of us have a much larger shoe collection than a collection of diamonds to wear. Let's face it, women, and men, love heels. What is really cool about this sexy, sensual and yet sophisticated style of shoes is that they too originated from good old Egypt. Imagine as far back as three and a half thousand BC when it is said that these type of shoes were being worn by the higher classes. The lower classes who were able to wear them definitely saw it as a privilege considering most of them could not afford to wear such works of art. However, I'm sure that the heels in those days were pretty uncomfortable compared to our modern day versions. If the lower class people's feet could have talked they probably would have thanked them. Number three, paper. Yes, you guessed it, paper is believed to have been invented by the ancient Egyptians around 4000 BC, although the name was actually papyrus. It was the first substance used to write on similar to the paper we use today. The Egyptians would take a woven mat of reeds and pound them together until it created a thin yet stiff sheet. The next invention couldn't have been thought of unless papyrus was invented first. So to number four, the pen. We're sure everyone has heard the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword, right? Well, this pen is certainly mighty. It has survived through ages of humanity and is still in great shape. Anyway, without papyrus, these babies wouldn't have been needed. The people of ancient Egypt could no longer use things such as bones, metal stick or sharp rocks to write on the sheet of papyrus so they had to invent something more useful that wouldn't break through thus the almighty pen not only does this picture show you their version of the pen but these objects contained in the original pencil cases too and if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 100 part 2 You can have a look at the pen pictures. And finally, number five, the water clock. This list is incredible, I know. However, it must come to an end. The last everyday object to originate from ancient Egypt listed here is the water clock. Never heard of that? Now you have. And guess what? Water clocks are still used to this day. They are more commonly used for decoration and for others to admire these works of art. However, the invention they preceded, the clock itself, is of course still used to tell time. Interestingly enough, it was hard to find a picture of an ancient Egyptian water clock, so we'll have to make do with this picture of an ancient water clock in Athens, Greece. In this particular photo, the water would flow into another bowl, thus allowing people to time themselves. All in all, the Egyptians were a clever group of people. If the ancient civilization were still around today, they would be shocked to see how far many of their inventions have gone and how modernized they have become. One of the recent additions to the Origins podcast are links to photographs, movies, videos, etc. that I think the listeners may be interested in. So in following on from that, here are some links to some photographs and things that I found interesting and hopefully you will as well. The first came from the www.smashingapps.com website and it's called 3D Artworks That Create Unbelievable Optical Illusions on Streets. And if you head off to the show notes and click on the link to this article, browse through the paintings because some of them are really quite amazing. Some of them are just done in the spirit of the thing, but some are actually advertising as well. But they are really quite brilliant and extremely well done. Our second set of photographs come from thewonderous.com and it's entitled 30 Awesomely Beautiful Animal Portraits. There are the usual cats and tigers and uh, what else have we got, gorilla and things like that. But some of them are different, meerkats, red pandas. Anyway, if you like animal portraits, animals looking at you with pretty faces, it's worth a look. And the third set of photographs comes from a terribly respectable website, www.popularmechanics.com and it's the world's 18 strangest bathrooms. Now this site is definitely worth a look. Bathrooms, whether public or private, encounter plenty of abuse. The constant inflow and outflow of water paired with limited space and high demands on hygiene and efficiency make it one of the most difficult rooms to design but there are plenty of architects who have stepped up to the challenge. Here are some of the most innovative bathroom designs in the world. And the one that I think I would take the most getting used to is probably the one-way mirror design on the street. Although the pop-up and pop-down ones, according to demand needed, is quite an interesting concept. Anyway, if you're interested in really, really unusual bathrooms, have a look. About eighteen, nineteen photographs. Following on from the last segment about photography, from the www.kansas.com website, an article by Colleen Surridge. The last Kodachrome roll processed in Parsons. Freelance photojournalist Steve McCurry, whose work has graced the pages of National Geographic, laid 36 slides representing the last frames of Kodachrome film on the lightboard sitting on a counter in Duane's photo service in Parsons. He placed a loop, a magnifier that makes it easier to view film over one frame and took a closer look at the film. McCurry told Duane's Vice President, Grant Steinler, how he had chosen to shoot the last roll of Kodachrome produced by Eastman Kodak by capturing images around New York. Then we went to India, where I photographed a tribe that is actually on the verge of extinction. It's actually disappearing the same way as Kodachrome, he told Steinler. Kodak announced last year that it would retire Kodachrome, a brand name of colour reversal film it had manufactured since 1935. McCurry, well known for his 1984 photograph of Shabat Gula or The Afghan Girl, published on the cover of National Geographic magazine, requested from Kodak to shoot the last roll of 36 frames it manufactured. National Geographic has closely documented the journey of the final roll of Kodachrome manufactured, down to its being processed. Duane's is the only photo lab left in the world to handle Kodachrome processing, so National Geographic television producer Yvonne Russo and National Geographic magazine senior video producer Hans Wise found themselves in Parsons Monday along with McCurry with the final role of the iconic film of the 20th century. As a professional freelance photographer, McCurry has used Kodachrome film for 35 years. It's definitely the end of an era, he said of Kodachrome. It has such a wonderful colour palette, a poetic look, not particularly garish or cartoonish, but wonderful. True colours that were vibrant, but true to what you were shooting. There are definite advantages to digital photography by comparison to film, McCurry said. You have the ability to view, edit and monitor what we are doing as we go. We can evaluate the light and composition and the design instantly, and we can shoot in extremely low light, which was impossible with film. Regardless, digital photography is simply not the same. I like having something to hold in my hand, McCurry said. With digital photography, it's just a hard drive. With Kodachrome, the film is real. You can touch it, put it in a drawer and come back to it later. It's tangible, it's an object. With digital, the pictures only exist in a hard drive, in a memory chip. A photographer since 1974 and photojournalist for National Geographic for 30 years, Kodachrome has been a part of Macquarie's professional career. Rousseau said they documented McCurry shooting the final role of film in New York, then travelling to Bombay, India and Rajasthan, India, then back to New York, shooting along the way several iconic personalities of the world of filmmaking. MacCurry said he spent about two months shooting the images, which also included some scenic photos, as well as serendipitous moments on the streets of New York. And I actually shot the last three frames here in Parsons, McCurry said. As Kodachrome is no longer manufactured, Steinler said that on December 10, Duane's photo will end its processing of Kodachrome. All this is going to be discarded, McCurry said of the processing equipment for Kodachrome. So it's just a piece of history. It's nostalgic, it's kind of sad. I have about 800,000 Kodachrome images in my lab, and these will be the last. If National Geographic does a spread on the journey of this final roll of Kodachrome, McCurry said it will likely come out in the spring of 2011, and will consist of only four to six images selected from the roll. However, Y said... The entire 36-frame shot will be sent to the Eastman House in Rochester, New York, where Kodak is based, and live there. Looking through the loop at each slide, Macari viewed his pictures of Robert De Niro, the Brooklyn Bridge, Grand Central Station, the tribe in India, the actors, actresses and models in India, and the other images of life he had captured. Among the images shot was one self-portrait of Macari in New York, Symbolic of the yellow and red packaging of Kodak Film, McCurry chose a yellow cab to pose by. He called Steinler to have a look through the loop at the cab's license plate. On it were the letters P.K.R. 36. Steinler laughed, not believing his eyes. If I hadn't seen this come off the processor myself, I would have sworn you had photoshopped that, Steinler said explaining how PKR 36 is representative of professional Kodak 36 film. As the two men stood talking of the end of an era in film manufacturing and processing that affects them both, McCurry presented Steinler with a proposal. Rather than paying Duane's photo in cash for the processing of the film, McCurry offered to cut Steinler a deal. In exchange for the processing, McCurry offered to create a special print of one of the slides and have it framed and mounted with a letter of authenticity included and send it to Steinler. It was a deal he accepted eagerly. Russo said the National Geographic special covering the last roll of Kodachrome manufactured will likely air sometime in spring 2011. lovely piece of music is entitled The Fishing Stream by John Schmidt and it can be found on the musicalley.com website Anyway, it's time to do some feedback for those of you kind enough to give me feedback And from the iTunes US store by Asia Traveller, the best podcast yet I've been listening to podcasts for over a year. I spend several hours a day listening while I do other things that don't require complete attention, such as exercising, walking, fishing or golf. Consequently, I need quite a few podcasts to fill that much time, so I spend quite a bit of time searching for new ones. I've probably tried three or 400 podcasts to date, and Paul's is by far the best I've run across so far. Thanks Paul for your excellent podcast, keep up the good work. By the way, I do also use it to fall asleep at night as so many others do, but I always go back and listen to the same episode again to hear the parts I missed. Well thank you Asia Traveller, aka Lawrence, and I happen to know this is Lawrence because he sent me an email as well. Thank you for your great review and your email. And speaking of emails, I'd also like to thank Sean M. from Hawaii. He says he hopes to come to Australia one day and visit me at the Botanical Gardens. And when I replied to the email, I said, I would love to show you around. I also received an email from Russell in South Carolina and he was relating to me a visit that he had to the American Stonehenge, which I featured in episode 72. And he also sent me a photograph of his brother and his dad. Well, his dad's taking the photograph and their gorgeous motorcycles. Anyway, I've put this photograph on the Origins website if you'd like to have a look at it. The American Stonehenge from episode 72. Well, thank you everyone who sent me an email or posted a review on iTunes. It's greatly appreciated. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback, please do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And the email is origins at origins.info. And whilst I'm doing lots of thank yous, I'd like to thank these people for becoming friends of the podcast. Lance from Redfeather Lakes in Colorado. I'd also like to thank Eric from Long Beach, California. I'd also like to thank Richard from Glenmore, Pennsylvania. And Jay from Salt Lake City in Utah. Thank you to you all. Your contribution to the podcast is greatly appreciated and really helps to keep things going. And remember, if you'd like to become a friend of the podcast... It's really easy. Just click on the button that says Donate on the Origins website. It will take you to PayPal. Make a donation of any amount and I will then in return send you to the links for the extra content versions of the Origins podcast, currently up to episode 11. Well, to bring episode 100 of Origins Part 2, that is, to a close... I'm going to replay a story from episode 57 that I've done a couple of times in my podcast, I think once was in Mysteries Abound. This article is one of my favourite from thedaminteresting.com and it makes me cringe every time I hear it. The terrifying toothpick fish. feature story for today from the www.daminteresting.com: The Terrifying Toothpick Fish, and it was written by Alan Bellows on January the 30th, 2007. And if this little article doesn't make you squirm a little while you're listening to it, you must be a very stout heart indeed. The vast freshwater ecosystem of the Amazon River is home to abundant animal life, and many of its species thrive by virtue of their ferocity. If one were to ask the locals which of the river's indigenous species is the most treacherous, a few might describe the roaming packs of carnivorous piranhas, or the massive anaconda snakes. But... Based on the general sentiment of the region, the most frequently uttered response would be Kandiru. The Kandiru is a tiny catfish which dwells in the depths of the Amazon River. These fish do not hunt in packs like the piranha, nor are they exceptionally large like the anaconda. In fact, the Kandiru is among the tiniest vertebrates on the planet and it is sometimes referred to as the toothpick fish due to its small size and slender shape. Only a handful of people have had the misfortune of crossing paths with the Kandiru, but their experiences serve as cautionary tales to any who venture into the mighty river. Though the Kandiru is a parasite, humans are not among its viable hosts. It lingers in the murky darkness at the river's bottom, quietly stalking its neighbouring fish. Light is scarce in the soupy deep, but the kandiru does not need to see. It can taste the traces of urea and ammonia that are expelled from breathing gills. This tiny hunter shadows its prey, almost invisible due to its translucent body and small size. When the target fish exhales, the candiro detects the resulting flow of water and makes a dash for the exposed gill cavity with remarkable speed. Within less than a second, it penetrates the gill and wriggles its way into place, erecting an umbrella-like array of spines to secure its position. Unconcerned with the host's panicked thrashing, the firmly anchored parasite immediately nibbles a hole in a nearby artery with its needle-like teeth, feasting upon the bounty that gushes forth. Within two minutes, the candiru's belly is swollen with the blood of its victim and it retracts its gripping barbs. Though it may seem that the exploited host fish has escaped, its injuries are so extensive that chances of survival are grim. Meanwhile, the victorious attacker slinks back into the river's dark places to digest its meal. There are many troubling stories regarding human run-ins with the Kandiru, though until recent years, these were not given much credence by the medical community. It is not uncommon for people swimming or bathing in the river to urinate in the water, an action which creates tiny water currents that are rich in urea and ammonia. It seems that the tiny slender catfish cannot always distinguish a urinating human from an exhaling fish gill and on occasion it will attempt its trademark high-speed attack on some unfortunate soul. Silvio Barbosa was one such soul. He was swimming in the Amazon River when he went head-to-head with the tiny parasite. I felt like urinating. I stood up, and it was then that it attacked me. The kandiru attacked me. When I saw it, I was terrified. I grabbed it quickly so it couldn't go deeper inside. I could only see the end of its tail flapping. I tried to grab it, but it slipped away from me and went in. I was very afraid, because the kandiru bites. When the candiru successfully invades a human, It proceeds exactly as it would with a fish host. After entering the misidentified orifice, it quickly wriggles its way in as far as possible, often accompanied by the victim's frantic attempts to grip the slippery mucus-coated tail. In the unlikely event that the panicked victim manages to grasp the fish, Its backwards-pointing barbs would cause excruciating pain at each pull and bring a quick end to the dramatic tug-of-war. Once inside, the parasite inches its way up the urethra to the nearest blood-gorged membrane, extends its spines into the surrounding tissue, and starts feasting. For the Kandiru, this misguided journey is a one-way trip. Its bloody banquet leaves it too swollen to escape. The only known retaliation against the invader is delicate and expensive surgery, or, failing that, a folk remedy which combines two herbs to very slowly kill and dissolve the fish. Silvio was fortunate enough to have access to modern medical facilities, though he had to endure three days of profound agony before the fish was extracted by an awestruck urogenital surgeon. Sylvia's incident was the first officially confirmed report of a candiru attacking a human, but such leg-crossingly horrific tales have haunted the region for generations. According to legend, many men chose castration as an alternative to a slow, excruciating death back before surgery was an option. Though such brushes with the Kandiru are exceedingly rare in statistical terms, it is wise to heed the advice of the locals and avoid urinating in the Amazon River at all costs. When the natives of the Amazon speak, one would be foolish not to listen. They are privy to some of the world's most horrible truths. Well, everyone, it's been a bit of a marathon session. I recorded this podcast all in one hit, so six hours at the microphone is a little tiring. But just as I got towards the end of the recording, I received an email from Dale from Ohio and was given the request that I play the Boob Fairy song somewhere within the podcast. And I thought, ah, let's finish the podcast on a light note. So just for you, Dale, to conclude the podcast for this week... The Boob Fairy Song. When
0: I was in my teenage years, I did just what I should. I listened to my mother, and I was kind and sweet and good. And my friends and I did rituals, and I prayed with all my might. That this would be the evening that she'd stop along her flight Well, that was several years ago, and that chick's long overdue And it's time I came to terms with something plainly clear to you The boop fairy never came for me No, the boop fairy never came for me Okay, I'm spunky and I'm cute and I've got a great personality the boob fairy never came for me Well, we were the third house on a country drive. I thought maybe she just got lost so I hung my bra on the mailbox bras at Sears Still I harbor hopes she'll come for me I know she will I'd get them done myself if she'd agree to foot the bill The book fairy never came for me No, the book fairy never came for me Look, I wasn't wanting melons Just a cute curvaceous bee But the boob fairy never came for me. This isn't a song about boobs. Not really. The boobs are just a set of metaphors to symbolize everyone's fear of human inadequacy. Hey, We've all felt the pain of being dissed by one fairy or another. So during the next refrain, I want you to join in with me with your own fairy that never paid a call. Maybe it's the height fairy or the butt nymph. Men, maybe it's the pectoral or hair fairy. Or maybe some other fairy you just want to mumble about. Look, nobody's going to ask you to enunciate sisters, I don't want you feeling alienated right now because you happen to be full-figured. Just change the line to the boob fairy just wouldn't let me be, or the boob fairy became obsessed with me. Okay, here comes the refrain. Everybody, join in. The boob fairy never came for me. No, the boob fairy never came for me. Though the hip fairy came two times. Three The Boop Fairy never came for me.